Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge, where we give you insight behind the headlines and keep you connected to what's going on here in Israel. I'm your host, Michael Unterberg, as always, with co-host Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? It's going great, Mike. Okay, and I got your name right. Uh, Very good. Uh, Would you like to introduce our guest for this episode? Uh, Awesome. So we have uh, Professor Gil Troy, who is uh, actually an American historian, um, but he now lives in Israel. God made Aliyah, a Zionist, and uh, actually has a book that we'll hopefully do another um, another episode on called The Zionist Ideas coming out in the late winter, early spring. Um, and uh, we asked him to come on here to talk to us about the 29th of November this year, as we've said in a few different episodes, lots of anniversaries this year. So the 29th of November is the anniversary of the 70th, um, uh, 70th anniversary of Resolution 181 in the UN, which was the suggestion to solve the Israeli-Arab conflict or Jewish-Arab conflict really at the time in Palestine by dividing it between two, two countries, um, a Jewish country and a, and a Palestinian country. So that's what we're doing here. All right. Well, that's our episode. Thanks so much. Yeah. Uh, oh, we should probably talk to you also. How's it going? Excellent. Thanks so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. Uh, we were looking for some particular insight into uh, understanding what happened that November 29th, but also just history in general and why you think it's so relevant to study. And the American role. And the American role in that uh, so Resolution 181. Yeah. So, so let's start with a defining image, which even 30, 40 years ago, most Jews knew. And it's, you have to imagine in black and white, grainy, People are sitting around these big, boxy, magic boxes called radios. And out of the radio is coming, Argentina! Bolivia! And, does this, and, and you see people with pieces of paper and pens in this pre-internet age marking. What does Argentina say? What does Bolivia say? Is Russia going to vote? Is the Soviet Union going to vote for uh, Jewish statehood? Which it did, by the way. We, don't, we forget that. And finally, when there's a majority saying that there will be a Jewish state... You then see these old newsreels of people dancing the horror in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem, but also in Boston, in New York, in Montreal, all over the Jewish world. It's this amazing moment because it means that after 2,000 years of homelessness, there's going to be a Jewish state. And yes, as Alan pointed out, there's a partition. And in some ways, it's a heartbreaking partition. Golda Meir says, at the time she was Golda Meirson, she says, what, I should divide... My children in half, like King Solomon? But David Ben-Gurion, the man who was on his way to becoming prime minister of the state of Israel once it was declared in May 1948, said that we'd rather have half a loaf than none. And that was actually the uh, image that he used. And so even on that day, it's bittersweet. But the singing, the dancing, the intensity is something that we've forgotten in two ways. One, we've forgotten how important it was to see that the world was legitimizing Zionism. And I'll talk about that in a second. But secondly... Wherever you were in the Jewish world, after thousands of years of homelessness, after decades of a Zionist conversation, and yes, after six years of the most horrific crimes in human history being perpetuated against the Jewish people, you had a Jewish state, and you had hope, and you had the world giving you a long-sought and long-needed hug. And that was Cuff Tip in November, November 29th, 1947. Are we... Are we is it romantic to think that that Zionist argument, pro and con, there were a lot of Jews who did not believe in the Zionist mission. Are we being romantic and thinking that on that November 29th, we celebrated as one? 
you're absolutely right that the major story throughout the, 19, throughout the late 19th and early 20th century in the Jewish world was not the Zionist story. People were coming to Israel in the tens, in the twenties, in the hundreds, and then going back in the tens, the twenties, and hundreds. The big story was the boat. The big story was the million and a half Jews who were coming from Eastern Europe to America. And this is when the American Jewish community grows. And especially for American Jews, who finally come to what they call the promised land, what they call the New Jerusalem, what they call the Golden Medina, who needs the Zionist revolution. So, of course, as good people, as good Jews, having a sense of community, they'll write the check to help those poor struggling Jews in Palestine. But the Zionist movement is a very marginal movement. However, the shock of the Shoah, the shock of the Holocaust, starting really not even in 1939 when World War II begins, but with uh, Hitler's rise in 1933, makes people realize that whatever I think personally there's a clear need for a Jewish state, and especially in 1945, 1946, 1947, when we start imagining how many tens of thousands, how many hundreds of thousands, how many millions of Jews would have been saved had there been a Jewish state. By 1947, by November 1929, 1947, it was a consensus. Mainstream Jewish world, there was a tremendous sense of unity from anti-Zionists, from ex-anti-Zionists, from ex-non-Zionists, that yes, we need a Jewish state, and the world saw that too. Now, as much as I get swept up in the romance of that moment, there's something that makes me uncomfortable about that moment. In the same way that right now we're in the middle of all these celebrations of the centennial, the Balfour Declaration, 100 years since November 2nd, 1917, when the British foreign minister wrote to Lord Rothschild, said there will be a Jewish homeland and we support it. And now we celebrate November 29th, 1947 as the 70th anniversary of the moment when the United Nations said there should be a Jewish state. I'm an American historian. There was no moment when the world said to America, you have permission, we're now giving you a permission slip to be the United States of America. The Declaration of Independence is about the United States of America seizing the moment and saying we have national rights, we have collective rights. And so as proud as I am of, the, of all that British Jewry and Christian Zionists and the British Empire did, and I actually like calling it Balfour Declarations because there were many, many declarations. Woodrow Wilson is talking about national self-determination in the United States. In Japan, they're endorsing Jewish nationalism. In, 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 in the United States, in England, in France, all over they're endorsing Jewish nationalism. And as proud as I am that that occurs again in 1947, and as I said, involving the Soviet Union as well as the United States, when the Cold War was starting, they didn't agree, I don't want to put our national identity and our collective rights on the UN or on the Balfour Declaration or on anybody else, but on our inherent rights as a people to be in our homeland. And uh, I, I compare it to, in 1985, Sally Field, uh, the actress got an Oscar, and she gets up and she goes, you like me, you really like me. Well, and, and it was kind of in... in a century ago, we would have called it a Bancha Schweig moment. Bancha Schweig was Bancha the Silent. It was a famous Yiddish story, which most uh, Jews these days don't know, about a guy who was so good and so wonderful, and he finally gets to heaven, but he spent his whole life being like a Galut Jew, being an exiled Jew, being a beaten-up Jew, that when he's given the choice of asking for anything, he asks for a little piece of bread. Well, we're not Sally Field, and we're not Bancha the Silent. We are a people like the 192 other peoples represented in the United Nations, like the dozens of other peoples who don't have 
full national states uh, in the world. And we, as one of those peoples, have collective rights. So I'm really excited to celebrate November 29th, 1947. But more important, I'm building up to the 70th, 70th anniversary, May 14th, 1948, when we had a declaration of independence. And it wasn't just independence from the British Empire, but it was independence from that whole way of thinking of, please, sir, I want some more. Please, sir, like me. No, we understand that we are Jews. The Jews are this kind of mix, I call it an Oreo cookie, because just like Oreo cookies are only truly an Oreo cookie if you have the cookie part and a cream part, so too Jews are only truly Jewish when they understand that we have a religion part and a nation part. Our holidays, our holy sites are also national sites, are also national days, and that mix is what makes the Jewish state legitimate and what also makes the Jewish state not a theocracy, not a religious state but a state that combines religious elements just like many European states do, just like many Muslim states do, but uh, also has national cultural legitimacy. Uh, and it's crazy that in 2017 we still have to explain, be explaining that, especially because a century ago the empires signed off on it, especially because 70 years ago the United Nations signed off on it, more so than almost any other nation, I would say. We don't just have... 3,500 years of legitimacy. We have all this, a stack of documents giving us legitimacy. So, you're, so essentially, if, uh, to put it in other words, are you saying that we shouldn't, we shouldn't look at the November 29th vote or the Balfour Declaration with a sense of gratitude, but with a sense of like appreciation good, and good for you guys that you got to have the opportunity to, to, you know, to recognize us and help us along? Thank, you know. You know, I'm a nice guy and I'm a polite guy, so I always like to say thank you. And, you know, I've learned that uh, it, it, it's right, all my years in Canada. Uh, and also there's the Jewish notion of hakaratatov, of acknowledging the good. So I'm happy to acknowledge the good. I'm, I'm thrilled that the Prime Minister of the State of Israel and many uh, leading uh, Israelis flew to, uh, on November 2nd uh, this year, 2017, to celebrate the, um, the Balfour Declaration. I'm thrilled that we'll, we'll have celebrations on November 29th, 1947. But I want to put it in perspective. I want, I, and I don't want special treatment. I only want equal treatment. I only want us to look at Jewish nationalism in the same way we look at all other forms of nationalisms, starting with my expertise, American nationalism, British nationalism, I'll, I'll add, I'll be controversial, even Palestinian nationalism, that, that if you understand that national ideas coalesce and that nations have a certain identity, I can accept the fact that Palestinians have national rights. My problem with the nation, Palestinian national movement is that unlike the Jewish national movement, unlike the American national movement, unlike the British national movement, unlike the Canadian national movement, which builds its national identity on an internal search and, and historical roots and its own power and its own prestige and its own pride, too much of the Palestinian national movement is dedicated to knocking down Israel, knocking down the Jewish national movement, knocking down Zionism. And that, especially given the ugly form of terrorism that they've embraced, not every Palestinian, but too many of the Palestinian leaders, and they have not yet repudiated, is my problem with Palestinian nationalism. The day the Palestinian nationalists stop fighting the 48 battle, the 47 battle, the 1917 battle, and start fighting the 67 battle, which is borders, then we'll have peace. But if it's an existential fight, then we have the right to say we, we have the legitimacy of the international community, but more important, we have the legitimacy of 3,500 years connection to this piece of real estate, and we're not going anywhere. And that's, you're saying that's their choice. In other words, they could choose to have a more internally driven narrative, but they're choosing this adversarial narrative. Not only are they choosing that, adversarial narrative. But look at what goes on on campus. I would have absolutely no problem 
just like there are weeks of Jewish pride on campus and we're building, we're building up to the 70th anniversary of Yamasmod, Israel Independence Day, just like all kinds of other groups on campus celebrate their national pride, their cultural pride, their ethnic pride. If there was a Palestinian National Week, I would say, fine, great. I understand that even though there was a pan-Arab nationalism uh, that, that predated Palestinian nationalism, and even though to this day we have a tendency as Westerners to kind of assume that Palestinian nationalism is the same as most forms of Western nationalism, and it's not because there are still very strong chamulas, very strong tribes, and perhaps a peace can occur not with a Palestinian state but with different Hawaii's, I think of the archipelagos, different centers of peace um, all along what's called the West Bank, Judea, Samaria. I don't want to get into that because that's for our 67 broadcast. Um, but, uh, but the fact that instead of celebrating their own national story, their own ethnic pride, their own cultural identity, what's the key week on campus for most Palestinian groups? Israel, apartheid week. Pa- passing on that lie, that blood libel, that first of all, the fight between Palestinians and Israelis is racial and not national when it's a national conflict. And there are dark-skinned Israelis and light-skinned Palestinians, and they racialize it in order to South Africanize Israel, in order to create these ugly um, analogies. And frankly, I don't understand why more African-Americans, why more African historians, why more South Africans aren't turning to the Palestinian movement saying, stop hijacking my narrative. It's just not true. And you're diminishing the meaning of the word race. You're diminishing the ugliness of the term apartheid just by using it every which way. But we'll put that aside. I'm talking about if a a Palestinian national movement that has at its core devoting a week, devoting too many resources to knocking down its neighbor rather than celebrating itself is a nationalism that gives nationalism a bad name and that is actually corrupt in its soul and needs a real internal purging and internal reform. Well, that seems to be going around in the world a little bit. Nationalism is a good nationalism, a bad name. Why, why do you think it's resonating, though? In other words, if there's this internal problem in the Palestinian world that they're developing this self-identity of rejection, but why is that message of rejection of Israel apartheid, these false – you're calling them blood libels. I think that's fair. Why is that resonating in the academic world beyond the world of, uh, of, of the Palestinian movement? Why is their message resonating seemingly successfully? And why are these pro- other professors, you know, your colleagues, not – standing up as you said you know in the um in the 1970s yeah yasser arafat the granddaddy of uh, palestinian nationalism but also i'm sorry to say the granddaddy of palestinian terrorism sat with edward said who was one of the great theoreticians of palestinian nationalism and said explained to him he said if it's a local conflict between arab and jew we lose but if we can link this conflict to the broader conflict at the time of the 1970s uh, against Vietnam, against the French in Algeria, against imperialism, nationalism, racism, we can win. And Said understood, and Said actually was an architect of this, that there was this whole new movement, an intellectual movement going on on campuses uh, in, in Europe, in far-left progressive circles, not mainstream liberal circles, that was actually undermining the core values of liberal nationalism. And I know nationalism is a complicated world and a controversial word, and I keep on using it because I want to take back the night. In the same way I use the word Zionism Mm -hmm. to take back the night, I don't want our enemies to define it. Liberal nationalism has helped build America, has helped build Canada, has helped build the United... Europe has helped build the democracies that we know and love, um, and Israel. And so I'm not not giving up on the the words liberal nationalism, I'm not giving up on the word Zionism. So, but Said saw that there was this whole other movement which can be called postmodernism which does two things. One, it 
says that things like nationalism, things like liberalism, things like the core ideas on which we built Western civilization are up for grabs, are fluid. And within that fluidity, there's a kind of relativism where if you can call yourself oppressed, and if you can say you've been oppressed racially, then you are privileged. And if you are deemed to be uh, connected to white privilege, then you are not privileged. You are, to use the word from intersectionality, you're blocked at the intersection. And in the course of the last four decades, a crazy thing occurred, which is that this people, the Jewish people, who were deeply oppressed, this people, a Jewish people, who were not united by race, but united by a mix of ethnicity and religion and nation, who said that Oreo cookie, has been defined as white, which denies the broad different kind of skin colors you see on any Israeli street, um, the, igno- ignores the fact that there are 850,000 uh, Jews from Arab lands with darker skin, uh, although we don't define people by skin color, uh, they do, um, who were kicked out of their lands and ended up in Israel, uh, missing the, 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 the variety and the diversity of Jewish history and the variety, the variety and diversity of the Jewish population, decided, no, Israel, Zionism, Judaism, those are all parts of white privilege. And to my shock and horror, my colleagues in the academy swallowed it, hook, line, and sinker. And so now we have this bizarre situation where Palestinian nationalism is seen as privileged, is seen as an example of an oppressed people of color when they're not. And the Jews are seen as connected to white privilege when, yes, there are some Jews who are white and there are some Jews who enjoy privileges. There are other Jews who are not white who don't enjoy privilege. And so this is really one of the great lies of the Western world, of the modern world, that has really come to corrupt Western society. And here I would say that there's a dual fight going on. This isn't just a fight to defend Zionism. This isn't just a a fight to defend Israel. This isn't just a fight to defend the legitimacy of the Jewish people. This is a fight to defend the purity and the integrity of the American Academy. This is a fight to defend the purity and integrity of that phrase liberal nationalism. That means that this is a fight to defend the purity and integrity of the, of the entire Western civilization and the United States of America. And that's the key. That's our challenge. And that's what we need to do. So, I, I mean, I don't know if this is a, a fair mark or a fair question. I'm going to throw it out there anyway, because when you're talking, it was making me think, so is this a 47 or 67 effect? You know what I mean? Is it uh, the effect of the, the, the UN coming along and, and that we were, we were sort of celebrating that legitimacy? Or is it something that really only is an effect because of the 1967 war where Israel expands beyond those 49 ceasefire lines? The PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, was founded in 1964, not 1967. The, the notion of the delegitimization of Israel, unfortunately, started even before 47, started uh, as soon as Zionism began. So um, the, the, the fact is that if we could teach history effectively, and this goes back to your opening question about why do we need to learn history? We need to learn history because in the same way that when somebody is knocked in the head and has amnesia and they've lost their memory, their first question isn't what do I remember, it's who am I? That if we lose our memory, we lose our identity. And so we need to go back to history in order to understand our identity. And if we could kind of close the book on this fight, if we could close the book on the question of the legitimacy, first of all, of the Jews as a nation, second, 
that as a nation, the Jews have collective rights to their homeland, the land of Israel, which is right here in the Middle East, that contested piece of real estate, and that Zionism is the movement of national liberation, of Jewish national liberation and Jewish self-determination to establish a Jewish state on that Jewish piece of real estate and live as a liberal democracy. And if that could be accepted, because in 1917, all the powers of the world, the great legitimate Western powers of the world said, we agree. Because in 1947, the United Nations uh, said we agree. But also, even more than that, because there's a whole Jewish story and there's a whole Jewish stream that explains this, then we wouldn't get into this existential battle. Then we could get into a battle or a discussion over borders, which is what I call, and I'm stealing from my uh, close friend and, and great teacher, Yossi Klein Levy. Yossi Klein Levy talks about the 48 file and the 67 file. He says the 48 file was the file that was opened up, that includes 47 and 17, um, with Palestinians rejecting the very right of Israel to exist. And until that file is closed, we can't open the 67 file, which is a question of, of borders. And, and the, the fact is that there are millions of Palestinians who have to be dealt with. You can't click their... They'd love to click their heels three times and make us go away. We'd love to click their heels three times... Or click, click our heels three times and make them go away. We're not going away, so we've got to figure out some rapprochement. But if you're trying to wipe out my very legitimacy and my very existence, you're calling me all kinds of names. The worst names you can find in the international vocabulary... Uh, racist, imperialist, colonialist, we have nothing to talk about. And until we get off that page, until we learn and celebrate together, just like the United Nations celebrated together November 29, 1947, it'll be very hard for us to make progress. Can I, can I ask you a teacher advice question? Sure. My students ask, when I, when I talk about these things, so my students will, this is my own just anecdotal experience, my students will will ask i think it's more of an emotional question it's more of a psychological question than a logical question they'll say how why should i listen to you when it seems like most people in the world are having problems with these things why 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 are you so confident that what you're describing is 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 fair and reasonable when we keep hearing people say that it isn't that's an excellent question. It's what I call the, uh, this is a very technical academic term, the Israel Ichsa effect. <laughs> that what's happened, that because there's so much hatred against Israel, there's so much hatred against the Jews, that people say, oh, there must be something wrong with me. Right? Look, it, it, it's, it, it's really crazy. The viciousness of Palestinian terrorism, the fact that there have been moments where they've wiped out three generations of people sitting in Israeli Arab restaurants in Haifa, for example, has people saying, wow. I'm a good person. I can't imagine doing that. I could only imagine doing such an extreme act like that if I was really, really suffering. And so there's an exaggerated perception of how much Palestinians are suffering. At the same time, there's an exaggerated indictment of Israel and the Jewish people. And here's, I'm going to say something I really regret, but unfortunately is true. And this, I think the teacher would have to be honest. We're not living in a fair world. There is this gene of anti-Semitism that's deep within Western civilization. There is this crazy phenomenon whereby the two most powerful anti-Christian forces in the 20th century, and in the 21st century, godless communism in the 20th century, and Islamism, the extreme version of Islamism in the 20th... Islamism. Islamism. Not not Islam, Islamism. um, In the 20th and 21st century, hate Christianity... But the one thing they've taken, both those forces took from Christianity, is medieval anti-Semitism, medieval Jew hatred, precisely at a time in the late 20th century when 
the Catholics through Vatican II and the Protestants through their various processes renounced anti-Semitism. So we have this crazy situation where, unfortunately, the hatred against Israel and the hatred against Zionism is flourishing against a background of good old-fashioned Jew hatred, which has been either exported or hijacked from the Christian world. The Christian world has delegitimized it, but other forces have legitimized it, both, and I'll add it, not only the, the um, today, godless communism is more or less dead, but the postmodernists are also hostile Christianity, but have hijacked this form of singling out the Jew. I'm not going to claim that Israel's perfect, because no country is perfect. Countries are reflections of human beings. Human beings are, 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 are flawed. But the degree to which one country is singled out, especially on college campuses, especially by my academic colleagues, the degree to which one country is demonized, the degree to which one country is considered to be completely unacceptable, and that that country isn't North Korea, and that the country isn't China, which has tens of millions of people in detention camps, which destroyed Tibet and destroyed Tibetan culture on a scale that, that Israel would never even conceive or dare to do. That, that, that so many other dictatorships are not considered to be on the list of, of countries that we detest, but the country that gets so much hatred is this small little embattled democracy, democracy in the Middle East, which has a Supreme Court, which has given the 20% of its population, Israeli Arabs, the right to vote. Not given, but it's just part of... Given is that same kind of thing of Sally Field. It it comes naturally. It, it comes organically. It comes authentically. Of course, they have the right. right? It's just right. It's 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 logical. It's 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 the same reason why we don't need a permission slip from November 20, 1947. Uh, so this whole thing that the fact that Israel is singled out doesn't pass the smell test. And when you start saying why, right, and then you go back to your students' question of why are we so unpopular. The question isn't why is Israel so unpopular now, it's why is the Jew so unpopular? And let me say one more thing. In the age of Trump, we have seen that 70, 80% of American Jews detest Donald Trump. And they are very easily able to distinguish their love for America and their hatred for their president. Because for them, and I'm stealing a key concept I learned from Pirkei from The Ethics of the Father, their love isn't dependent on anything. Their love for the United States is not dependent on the president of the United States. It's, de- it's, it's just, it's, it's inherent. It's like the love, Pirkei Avot, uh, Ethics of the Father says, between David and Jonathan. But when it comes to Israel, because their love is dependent, their love is dependent on Israel making them proud. Their love is dependent on Israel being lovely. Their love is dependent on, on Israel playing nicely. Their love is dependent on Israel being popular. We have what I call the delegitimization derby. I don't like Bibi Netanyahu. Okay, I don't like Donald Trump. Therefore, or I don't like Israeli policies, or I don't even like how Israel is handling the Palestinians in the the West Bank. That's legitimate. But why do I go on the delegitimization delegitimization derby from I don't like Bibi to I don't like Israel to I don't like Zionism to Israel doesn't have the right to exist? That is because A, the love is dependent, but B, because the hatred is so powerful that even many Jews absorb it. And when I speak to groups, I don't care when I speak to Orthodox groups or, or Reform groups or unaffiliated groups, I say, I don't care where you stand on the political spectrum. I don't care where you stand on the religious spectrum. We are all traumatized by living in the age of delegitimization, by living in a world where there is so much hatred against Israel. All our conversations are distorted. The right tends to be far too defensive and not allow an open, thoughtful, multidimensional, critical conversation to occur. And that's, by the way, why many Jewish students turn off because they say, what, if, if, I have to, if I have to accept every single thing the Israeli government has ever done and the Israeli government can change on a dime, that's not thoughtful, that's not intelligent, that's not deep.
How can questions be taboo to Jews? Right. That can't be. I right. should be able to ask legitimate questions. Right, and, and, and Judaism is all about questions, and, and Zionism is all about fights. Right there in, in, in my book, The Zionist Ideas, I have six different schools of Zionist thought fighting it out, battling it out. And I took a book, The Zionist Idea, and added the S, The Zionist Ideas, to say we need plural. <laughs> we need a plural. We need to say there are different ideas. So when we see that, I, again, I don't want special treatment, and I don't want people to necessarily love Israel. But this hatred of Israel really has to get you thinking about what's going on. And for our Jewish students, there is a deeper question of loyalty. Um, first of all... I, I don't know. I can't think of a more exciting, more romantic, more amazing story than a people battered, scattered, humiliated, 3,500 years of a great tradition demeaned over 2,000 years in exile, and then coming back and building this place in an area surrounded by dictatorships, surrounded by people with, without human rights, surrounded by countries that demean women, women that beat women, that... that beat homosexuals, that demonize lesbians and gays, that won't even have a conversation about transgender, and then you have this one little democratic oasis with all its flaws, and it's the bad guy? And it's the villain? (laughs) Doesn't pass the smell test, because it's the Jewish state, and we can see the same way the individual Jew was hated in the medieval world, the collective Jew is now hated in the international world. So what was different in 1947 that made the vote, that, you know, two-thirds of the United Nations... Uh, approved, uh, you know, the the idea of creating a state of Israel? Great question. So there were three things going on in 1947 that have changed. One, there was a tremendous amount of guilt. There was a tremendous amount of post-Holocaust guilt. Now, again, I always emphasize that the Zionist story starts with Abraham or with the Bible, wherever you start the story of the Jewish people. The Zionist movement starts when all those other nationalist movements are starting in the 1800s. It doesn't start in the wake of the Holocaust. But that UN vote? The dynamics of that UN vote were first and foremost determined by the, the, the politics in the wake of the Shoah, in the wake of the Holocaust, because just as the Jewish world saw, wait a minute, without a Jewish state, there's no Jewish home, there's no Jewish refuge when this ugliness uh, emerges in uh, Nazi Germany and elsewhere, so too the international community saw what happened and was able to imagine had there only been a Jewish state in 1939, in 1933, in 1923, as I said earlier, a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, a million, six million might have been saved. So we start with guilt. Then I have to say, the Cold War helped. Andre Gromyko, the Soviet ambassador to the UN, who goes on to become the Soviet foreign minister for many years, gets up and gives a beautiful speech about Jewish nationalism, a beautiful speech about the Jewish ties to the land, and a realistic speech about the inability for the Arabs and Jews to live together, and therefore the need for them to partition, to divide, and why? Because in the wake of World War II, during this new emerging war called the Cold War, the Soviets want the Jews to ally with them, and they say, hey, most of the leadership of this, of, of the, this new Jewish state was born in Russia. Many of them speak Russian. Many of them have Russian mentality. Many of them are socialists. We're socialists too. Hey, let's join. What they didn't realize was that Zionism was about democratic socialism, socialism with true freedom, and communism, and they knew it, uh, the Zionists knew it, communism was about socialism without freedom, and they weren't going to go anywhere close to them. But, so the, so the, the Soviets... Oh, except for, there was plenty of Zionists. Yeah, there yeah. were, but, the, but, but at the end of the day, the consensus was, no, we're not going that far. And then the third piece, of course, is we have to say, as I always say, 
God bless America, the United States of America, which was the great victor of World War II, which had brought together the coalition that became the United Nations. The United Nations were the nations that united in 1942 with the understanding that they wouldn't accept side victories and private victories uh, from the Nazis, from Nazi Germany. They had to be absolute and total surrender. And they work together, and then they want to create this peacemaking organization. And it's what we can call a Pax Americana, an American peace, and led by this short, scrappy person who was considered to be completely inexperienced and and unqualified for the presidency, Harry Truman, which is why Franklin Roosevelt wanted him as his vice president, because Roosevelt had the aging and the ailing uh, leader's ego and didn't want a threat. And lo and behold, at the very beginning of his fourth term, Franklin Roosevelt dies. Harry Truman steps in. Huge shoes to fill. And this little guy from the Midwest turned out to be, yeah, turned out to be quite a grand old man and grand and grand strategist and grand statesman. And in 1947, he's annoyed because he's getting thousands, literally hundreds of thousands, almost a million different telegrams and letters uh, from different Zionists, from different Jews saying, you've got to support the Jewish state. And he's annoyed by it because they don't like it get pushed around. He says, at one point, he says, he yells. He says, if anybody in this Oval Office is going to yell and scream, it's me, not you. Um, and you can imagine the Jews were the ones doing the yelling and the screaming. But he also has a sense of right and wrong. And he also has a sense of history. He also grew up being read the Bible by his mama. And he understands that he has an opportunity, a historic opportunity, because he knew his history. He understood you have to know your history in order to know your identity. You have to be a proud American. You have to know the Bible. You have to know the past. And he says, this is an amazing opportunity. I can help bring these Jewish people home. I can help heal these Jewish people. And I can also help show that the United Nations, that the United States are a constructive force for good in the world. We're going to go in and impose a peaceful solution. And by having a partition that's going to give the... At the time, it was Palestinian Jews and Palestinian Arabs. We're going to give the Palestinian Arabs their due, but we're also going to give the Palestinian Jews their due. And on November 30th, 1947... Had the Palestinians accepted the leadership of the United States of America and the Soviet Union at the time. On November 30th, 1947, the day after, had the Palestinians followed what actually occurred in many ways on the ground between Palestinian Arabs and Palestinian Jews. Many of them worked together. Many of them lived together. There would have been peace. There would be peace now. But instead, what happened is a great book by a guy named Ephraim Karsh. What happened was Palestine was betrayed. And he said, who betrayed Palestine? Not the Palestinians, not the Jews, not the Soviet Union, not Harry Truman, not the United States, but the Palestinian leaders. The Palestinian leaders, led by the Grand, uh, the, the, the grand Mufti, Haj Amin al-Husseini, who was a friend of Hitler, led by these far right-wing extremists who ultimately became the Islamists of today, the Islamist terrorists of today, these people rejected any kind of compromise and any moderate on the Palestinian side, who wanted to work with his Jewish friends, who wanted to work with his Jewish neighbors, who saw that when the Jews came in, the whole area flourished. And more Arabs basically started coming in from the outer uh, countries of the Middle East, just as more Jews started coming in, because there was prosperity, and there was leadership, and there was creativity. All of them were killed, or intimidated, or blackmailed. And as a result, Kar says, Palestine betrayed. The extremism of the Palestinian leadership betrayed the Palestinian people. And I would argue, through Yasser Arafat, through Mahmoud Abbas today, through Hamas today, Palestine is still being betrayed by its leaders. Thank you so much. Um, I think we're going to wrap just because of time, because I could stay here all day, I'm sure. Professor Troy would be happy if we left, but I'd be happy listening. Again, 
Yeah, you're flying tonight again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. flying to, to Los Angeles for a couple of days. And, um, but we can uh, do the wrap the next time. But yeah. that's a whole other thing. <laughs> All right. Well, we do want to have you back um, for your book. And uh, anytime you're willing to have us uh, uh, listen to your articulate passion on behalf of uh, really Jewish history and Jewish destiny, I think, is really what you're talking about. Great. Well, thank you. You guys are doing really important work. I, I, I admire what you're doing both in the classroom and in what do we call it, the virtual classroom, the, uh, the, the podcast, the, um, the teacher's lounge. It's a great idea. And, and we need just more conversations about this, about yeah. what Israel means to me, what Zionism means to me, how to lower the conversation, how to lower the temperature of the conversation, how to really get to substance and learn the basic facts. Yeah, less heat, more light. Yes. And that's what we're trying and, and, and detoxifying these things that people think are taboo. Nothing's taboo for Jews. We can talk about everything. So thank I'm not you. Not afraid of any questions. I always tell students I'm not afraid of any questions. I'm not afraid of anybody. Let's just sit and talk. And do you agree that that's not just fundamentally Jewish, but also fundamentally American? Absolutely. Like that's, uh, Absolutely. And this is what scares me about the university campus. It's supposed, right? It's supposed right. to be university. It's supposed to be, it's supposed right. to be, and, and the university is supposed to be the center of that. Right. And that's the one of the tragedies of today. Yeah. Well, we're doing what we can, but we appreciate uh, your your wisdom and your insight and, 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 and I think your passion, really, which just makes it come across so much more powerfully. So thanks again. And uh, thanks a lot, Alan. Thank you, Mike. And bye-bye, guys. Bye. This has been JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge podcast. Please check out our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org, for episodes, blog posts, and contact information. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you use for podcasts. But you knew that, right? Uh, you can follow our Facebook page at the Teacher's Lounge Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at JUIsraelGap. Please keep in touch with us with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions. And if you know somebody who would enjoy our podcast in general or an episode in particular, we love it when people recommend us. Thank you, guys. <laughs>